Hello, I'm Dr. Annalene Weston, Dental Legal Consultant at Dental Protection. Welcome to Risk Bites, a series of podcasts created specifically for dental practitioners in Australia. Risk Bites looks at the key dental legal risks and issues affecting dental practitioners across Australia and provides helpful advice and guidance on how to steer clear of them, leaving you free to provide safe and high quality dental care for your patients. In this edition, I'm going to speak with my colleague, Dr. Roger Dennett. So Roger, I don't think any of us have heard about the five cans. What are they? Well, Annalene, the five cans actually come from a famous story in Greek mythology. Yep, it's the story of Icarus and his father Daedalus, who attempted to escape from a tower prison by wings made of feathers and wax. Icarus's father warns him first of complacency and then of hubris, asking that he fly neither too low nor too high, lest the sea's dampness clog his wings or the sun's heat melt them. Icarus, of course ignored his father's instructions not to fly too close to the sun, and so when the wax in his wings melted, he fell into the sea to his death. Yeah, I've been reflecting on this a lot recently, Roger, not quite in those terms, but that balance between striving to reach the tyranny of perfection and pushing too hard, offset with the I guess, the danger of excessive complacency and not pushing hard enough. But I can see in the example that you've given that the parallels in dentistry is strong because if you promise too much or overstep your competency, you're just as likely to tumble out the sky as you are to deliver on your promises. Yes, spot on, Annalene. I think that all dental practitioners should consider what I call the five cans, for want of a better phrase, which are a list of questions when deciding on the patient's treatment. Oh, okay, so that's the five cans. They're actually questions, Roger. So what are these five can questions then? Okay, the first can is, can I do it well? This is a question all practitioners need to ask themselves before they undertake any treatment, particularly any treatment that's complex in nature or relates to an area of perhaps new practice they are expanding into. Go on. Well... A relevant example relates to general practitioners aiming to expand their education and training in an area that is often not comprehensively covered at dental school orthodontics. Of course, as we learn new skills, there there is a fine line to be walked, a line between playing it safe on one hand and pushing the envelope on the other. So you can end up flying too close to the sun here. Case selection, planning, managing expectations with a patient and ensuring compliance are all key considerations in setting out on the journey. Unfortunately, because of these complexities, we are witnessing an upsurge in the number of complaints involving general practitioners providing orthodontic treatments, both complaints made to APRA and demands for compensation. Yes, indeed. And this has, of course, been compounded by a pervasive belief that orthodontic treatment can only be provided by specialists. And as we're not the arbiters of clinical judgment, we at Dental Protection prefer to consider dentistry along the terms of prescription of scope of practice. Yes, you're right. What this is really all about is one scope and competence. The Code of Conduct states that development of knowledge, skills and professional behaviour must continue throughout a practitioner's working life. And the good practice means that we keep knowledge and skills up to date and working within our competencies and our scope of practice. Sounds good to me, Roger, a lifelong commitment to development. So what do you think one of the most important drivers we are seeing in orthodontic complaints is? 
Well, in many cases, when a critical third party reviews the matter, we see a lack of full clinical assessment and diagnosis of the patient's orthodontic condition flowing on to a treatment plan that, in the eyes of a regulator, may be ill-conceived and ineffective at best, or possibly harmful and irreversible at worst. Specialist retreatment often follows in these cases, usually with good results, which can mean, though, the experience has been an expensive exercise for all concerned, but most of all, a trial for the full patient, and again, an expensive one. Yes, I agree, Roger. Our patients have high expectations, and they believe that we, as professionals, are always experts at what we do. It's important to remember that while we may have been qualified for 20 years, if we introduce a new skill set to our practice, using the example, Roger, that you're using of orthodontic treatment, we need to set our patients' expectations about our level at this specific discipline of dentistry accordingly, because our patients are going to assume that we're equally as competent and experienced in this as we are in all of the other treatments we've been providing to them over the years. And of course, when we're trying something new, the value of a mentor cannot be understated. Moving on then, Roger, what's the second can? The second can is, can I do it efficiently and effectively? Think, for example, endodontics or oral surgery. Ah, efficiency. So I'm starting to wonder if we're thinking about some accelerated treatments here, Roger, like single visit endodontics, because as you know, we have a webinar series and some accompanying articles on this very, very pertinent issue. Indeed, we do. Dental protection deals with many complaints involving dentists providing molar endodontics. The complaints, often arising from failure to resolve symptoms or reinfection, usually reveal the main issue to be a lack of locating and subsequently treating all the canals. This often results in many dressing appointments and delays, which flow into an unsatisfactory outcome necessitating specialist remedial treatment, or worse, the loss of the tooth. When this occurs, often without appropriate pre-operative warnings being given, the result can be an expensive claim against our practitioner. Yes, it can. And you also mentioned oral surgery. And we often find, don't we, that if you take, say, a third molar surgery and the practitioner takes two and a half hours to remove the wisdom tooth under local anaesthetic, that many critical parties perhaps would not necessarily perceive this as being efficient or effective. Indeed, yes. Especially for recent graduates, third molar surgery has been an area where we could say an excess of enthusiasm may result in a clinical complication. Aspects of care, such as a lack of recognition of the difficulty of the case, resulting in unexpected complications during the operation, can then flow on to a surgical ordeal for the patient and an extended procedure outside of the expected norms with the patient losing trust in the practitioner and maybe also in dentistry itself. Yes, let's take the case where a lack of assessment and understanding of the position of the IAN and its proximity to the wisdom tooth roots may result in damage to the nerve. Not only that, but there are other important considerations, such as an improperly placed incision, which increases the chance of postoperative lingual nerve neuropraxia or injury, yeah, we often find that in the post-operative criticisms of the practitioner that accompany the inevitable complaint, the regulator queries why the case was not referred to a specialist in the first instance, or if the practitioner wanted to do that treatment, why they weren't doing it with the support of a more experienced practitioner or mentor to learn and grow. 
Exactly. And a much more pleasant experience for patient and practitioner alike, if I may say. This then brings me to the third can. Can I do it without harming the patient? A good example to consider with this can is implant surgery. Yes, Roger, and let's call it out right here. Implant dentistry is expensive and patients expect unfailing high levels of expertise and an excellent outcome. Unfailing, Annalene. I love that word. <laughs> implant surgery is another high-risk area for claims. Expensive claims associating with poor results and unexpected complications, most of which can end up with high level of un patient dissatisfaction and a significant number of complaints made to the dental board or APRA. And of course, not just the dental board or APRA, Roger. We do, as you know, see many of these cases ending up as legal claims and negligence where the patient sues the dentist. And in fact, these are some of our more expensive claims, of course. Yeah, so true. Patients expect high levels of expertise these days and a good outcome, regardless of how experienced the practitioner actually is. These cases may be expensive to retreat when unexpected consequences occur and failing to discuss risks and warnings at the planning or diagnostic phase right at the start can serve to build and compound the patient's dissatisfaction. I can, Roger. Could you share us some examples, please? Well, let's take the case where, say, a single implant has been placed such that it impinges on the periodontal ligament of an adjacent tooth, resulting in that tooth's pulpal necrosis, resulting in pain, sometimes loss of the tooth or the implant, but always the same result, a very unhappy patient. Then we have other cases where, say, a posterior implant of the mandible placed into or up against the inferior alveolar canal results in ongoing pain. Sometimes, if done quickly, removal of the implant may result in the abatement of symptoms, but sometimes it's already too late and there has been permanent damage to the mandibular nerve, in which case, you know, it's sort of likely to become again. An expensive claim. But with the adequate assessment and planning of the case and the use of cone beam scans, we would hope this type of outcome is avoidable. Unfortunately, that won't always be the case, but we can certainly mitigate it, can't we? Indeed, we can. Okay, Roger. So what's our fourth can? Well, the fourth can is, can I honestly recommend this treatment? I like to think of this one as a subtitle, The Mother Principle. Yes. Um, some of our members would have heard of this before, Roger, uh, also called The Daughter Principle. It's the same concept, isn't it? Which is that you wouldn't want if you wouldn't want, I should say, the treatment for your loved one, then why would you recommend it to a patient? Yes. Take the example of the heroic treatment case where the practitioner tries to save the, a tooth, which is frankly unrestorable. We all know that it doesn't make sense, yet many practitioners will attempt what I call herodontics at times for a variety of reasons. Sometimes we attempt this because we truly believe we can achieve success or should at least try to, because perhaps sometimes we might be too afraid of a negative reaction from the patient if we don't try our best. When explaining how the treatment came to be performed, sometimes the dentist will say, well, you know, the patient talked me into it. Yeah, I think we've all had that, haven't we, where a patient's tried to talk us into something, sometimes successfully. And I know when I was a younger practitioner, it was something I would experience quite a lot, that being pushed into things by patients. But we, of course, need to consider 
whether or not it's in the patient's best interest to perform that treatment just because they want it. Because just because they want it, it doesn't mean we have to do it. And we must always be thinking primum non nocere. Ah, yes, indeed, Emily. You're quoting Hippocrates, haven't we? Wonderful. <laughs> Truly wonderful. Although actually not found in the Hippocratic Oath, interestingly. Anyway, as dentists, first do no harm means that we sometimes have to say no to a patient. Absolutely agree. So when do you think we should be saying no, Roger? As you've outlined, in cases where the treatment is not in the patient's best interests, where there's inevitably a high likelihood of failure and problems. These things just are a recipe for disaster. And in such cases, the practitioner should remember that she and he always has the right to refuse treatment. They do. So let us take a difficult and demanding patient who's not very accepting of our treatment plan and is being quite prescriptive in their demands, telling you what to do and maybe even how exactly to do it. What would you suggest? Are these patients on the rise, I wonder? Sometimes I think they are. Well, let's consider a challenging case where the treatment under consideration is complex and difficult. For example, sinus lifts before implant surgery, then followed by complex prosthodontics. Now, even if all of that treatment or some of that treatment is within your scope, you get a sense that meeting this patient's expectations will be equally as difficult, even with the best dentistry that you can do. So why not consider referring the patient to a more experienced colleague or specialist, if only for a second opinion? Do you have a mentor or a senior colleague whose experience and opinion you value? Why not approach them and discuss the case? Don't remain in isolation. No, I absolutely agree, Roger. Dentistry is a really challenging profession for a whole plethora of reasons, but not least of which because of the professional isolation in which so many of us practice. Yes, Annalene, which brings me to the fifth and final can. Can I communicate well with this patient? You know, as Buddha once said, the cause of all suffering is desire. Yes, and as dentists, we deal with desire, whether it be patient expectations and their desire for perfection, or maybe even ours every single day. Yes, many of us have had little training in interpersonal communication. A useful but simple neuro-linguistic programming technique is reframing. Try to put yourself in the patient's position and understand their thought processes. I love reframing, Roger. I think it's a fantastic technique. So could you explain for our listeners how you'd go about that? Well, it's a large subject by itself, but perhaps here's a short list of questions you should think about. Firstly, are you aware of what the patient expects about the treatment that you're recommending? Are those expectations reasonable? Are you and the patient on the same page? Have you asked them the right questions to test their understanding? Are there cultural barriers to their understanding and your communication with them? Is this particular patient obsessed about perhaps cosmetics and appearance? And does the patient have the actual capacity to consent. Yes, uh, that, they're all really relevant, Roger. And I think I always find the questions one an interesting one because the questions that patients ask us often signpost to us what their values are and what's important to them. But then also the questions that we ask them are important too to get an understanding of what they're hoping for from the treatment. Of course, as you've signposted here, we do see a large number of claims, and I do think on the rise, from patients who have a heavy focus on their appearance, and then the consent issue regarding patients who don't have capacity is a problem too. Which brings up the whole area of consent, both informed consent and valid consent. 
It does, Roger. And while uh, we have to, of course, assume that all our patients, adult patients, I should say, have the capacity to consent until proven otherwise, there are a number of issues that may impact on their ability to do so. And then, of course, we have the tricky area of that where we have children who are no longer children, but legally they are children, so known as our Gillick competent patients. You know, consent's just a really tricky area, isn't it? Oh boy, I agree. I think we can all agree that we learned good clinical skills with our undergraduate training, but most of us didn't learn how to communicate with people, with our patients. As we all know, the whole process of informed consent involves giving out relevant information, um, providing the patient with options, and obtaining the patient's consent. Good communication forms the basis of consent around treatment options. We all need to improve our skills in this vital area. Yes, Roger, I think we do. And thank you. I loved looking at that through the filter of the five cans. So thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure, Annalene, as always. Well, thank you so much, Roger, for that relevant and helpful content. And thank you all for listening. We hope this podcast was helpful to you and we look forward to sharing more guidance with you in the future. If you like Dental Protection Podcasts and you'd like to hear more, please subscribe and leave a review.